Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, March 24th, 2011. Mm -mm -mm. Alright, I think I got it all ready. Why is it that every time the program starts, I always feel like I'm rushing Yeah, no clue. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy Things being said out there. You know, I was in a conversation with uh, my uh, oldest daughter. Uh, that would be my middle child uh, today. She's taking a philosophy class, and they were in. She was kind of musing about how, um, in different ancient cultures, they killed people um, in order to appease the gods. Or at least that's what they were thinking. And uh, and you know, my comment to her was this: is that uh, without any revelation from God as to who he is and what he's about or how it is to please him, man somehow seems to automatically think that he knows what is necessary to do a good work. And man invents his own good works and thinks that by doing them, he's making God happy or making the gods happy. And uh, one of the most notorious and and horrible self-made man you know man-made works you know in order to appease god was human sacrifice and um but the reality is is that there's a whole plethora of these self-invented good works you know you think about uh, the catholic practice of only eating uh, you can't eat meat on fridays or you say the rosary or you know th- things like that we invent good works and expect that by doing our good works that God is somehow pleased with us, that we've earned brownie points with him, that he looks down from heaven and goes, oh, look, that person is making me so happy because they sacrificed their daughter to Molech. You know it doesn't work that way. So 
and uh, and and that's ultimately what we're dealing with here in the uh, Christian church in our time is is that there's a whole bunch of pastors despite the fact that never before in human history have we had such amazing tools uh when it comes to access to the bible and what the bible means and what god communicated to uh, to us uh, in his word i mean there are, I mean, I, I use two different uh, Bible uh, pieces of software. I use Accordance for the Macintosh as well as Logos. And, and these are fantastic tools. I mean, you know, we understand, uh, you know, we understand Koine Greek. We understand uh, ancient Hebrew. I mean, uh, Aramaic. I mean, all these tools are there for us. I mean, scholarly, scholarly, well-written, well-researched commentaries that help us understand what God's Word says. We have faithful confessions uh you know going back to the ancient creeds uh, i would even then point to such incredible documents as the book of concord fantastic things to help us properly understand what god has communicated in his word and yet all of that gets chucked out the window in the name of following the spirit and uh and what ends up happening so many times when people let the spirit lead is that ultimately their stomach is leading them and they get back into that same quagmire that these ancient peoples were in. And the quagmire is this made up man-made works, man-made ideas, man-made doctrines, man. These are all the traditions of men and have nothing to do with what God has revealed. And so one of the things I think is interesting is that in uh, in, in Protestantism and even in you know what's left of American evangelicalism there's a sense in which there's a bristling against uh you know the false teachings of Roman Catholicism. It's like oh those guys follow a bunch of man-made traditions. And uh, the way Jesus uses that term traditions ultimately comes back to the idea of traditions are rules. Uh, Traditions are doctrines made up by man. And so there are all kinds of traditions that uh, that exist even in American evangelicalism and Protestantism. And what we're seeing over and over and over and over again is is that uh, these ideas have their origin in the fertile uh, imaginations of man, not in what God has revealed. And so on this program, we do the politically incorrect thing. We take we take shot at bad doctrines and bad ideas and false teaching. And uh, in the process of doing that, we you know, you also get to hear who it is that's teaching such things. And uh, and you know, that's all part and parcel. You need to know who's been who's who be teaching the bad stuff out there? Who's making things up and calling it the Word of God? Who's making things up and saying it's that's what God's will is, or that's how God is? So uh, it's politically incorrect, but it's not about guilt by association. It's about analyzing and comparing ideas, about analyzing and comparing thoughts and doctrines and saying, does this square with what God's Word says. If no, we reject it, and we challenge those pastors and teachers and authors and bloggers and whomever who are teaching these false things to repent and to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and what God has clearly revealed. And uh, this causes, uh, well, it means that uh, I, I, from time to time, get shot at. I'm a controversial figure, and that the people that I critique oftentimes... Um, well, they, 
you know, they they, they don't say complimentary things about me. <laughs> it's just part of the job. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is uh I think this is going to be a good one. I you know, I try very hard. I put a lot into each and every episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we're going to start off uh we're going to start off a little bit light. Uh, somebody on Facebook a couple weeks ago sent me a music video uh, uh, that uh, is on YouTube by uh, so uh, a contemporary Christian uh, artist by the name of Melanie Hart from Canada. Um, she has a, um, well, a, a new song entitled Good Jesus. We're going to listen to that. Um, um, let's see here. We've got news uh, about a pastor who I actually know. Uh, who has been fired for not believing in hell. He's one of these emergent types. I've uh, met him at uh, one, possibly two different emergent events. You know, I travel from uh, conference to conference many times to do primary research on the emergent church so that I understand uh, what's at the core of its uh, teaching and what you know what you know what's causing it to go the way that it's doing? And as a result of my travel and uh, in attempts to understand these, uh, these ideas from primary sources. I often run into folks like this, but Chad is uh, is Pastor Chad Holtz. He's been fired for not believing in hell, but I've known for several years that he was a universalist. So it's kind of interesting. We'll take a look at that story, and then one of my Facebook um, friends, one of the listeners who uh, who was befriended me on Facebook, pointed something out regarding Rick Warren's sermon about how God wants to talk to you and how you can listen to God. And it was it's such a profoundly simple and wonderfully elegant refutation of what Rick Warren said in that sermon that I have to pass it along to you. And and then we've we've got an interesting chain of events. We got Brian McLaren defending Rob Bell against Rob Moeller and uh, not Rob Moeller, Al Moeller and Al Moeller then responding to McLaren. And um, and then there's a sub story to this that uh, we'll pick up, too. And uh, and then in our sermon review time, we, we I, I kind of anticipate that the first section uh, of this pro, uh, this edition of Fighting for the Faith might run a little bit long. I don't know. We'll see how well I can manage my time. But uh, we have a good sermon review for you today, and this I chose this specific sermon to play today. It, it, it it's it's entitled "Tempted for You," and it's uh, was preached by uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope. Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and I picked this one because this sermon basically takes apart the the major premise of liberal theology, and it does so by go by pointing out correctly the tactic always employed by Satan when he tempts people. And uh, and this is a sermon preached regarding the text where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But man, you've got to hear this one. You have got when you hear this and you hear it in the context of what's going wrong in the emergent church and liberal theology and all of these bizarre things going on in the seeker driven movement. You're gonna go ha 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 ha. You're gonna have one of those. Um, how, how did it go from the movie Hook? Uh, um, uh, Mister Smee said. Uh, I uh um I've had an apostrophe and uh, and he says lightning has just struck me brain and Captain Hook quips back and says that must have hurt. Anyway, uh it's, you're going to have one of those uh, you're going to have one of those apostrophes. <laughs> 
yeah, it's an epiphany. Um, anyway, um, so uh, this is uh, yeah, lots and lots to do today. So make yourself comfortable. Lots of ground to cover, and we'll start off with something just a little bit bizarre. Um, here is um, Canadian Christian artist Melanie Hart and her new song entitled "Good Jesus." And my response is, "Good gravy, good night." You've got to be kidding me! But uh, here, listen in. Here we go. Dear Jesus, you're in my heart now. I love you. You've been a good Jesus to me. I've been down the road of life once or twice. Been on some high road. You've been down the... <laughs> you Really, you've been down the road of life once or twice. I thought we only get to go around once. that sentence mean (laughs) you've been a good jesus to me i cannot i cannot on my worst day imagine addressing the our great god and savior jesus christ the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the king of kings and lord of lords who's going to return in glory to judge both the living and the dead our crucified and risen savior as well, you've been a good Jesus to me. It, it sounds like something akin to a good dog, or you know, you've 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 been a good friend. You've been a, what? What's a good Jesus? We continue. This is kind of an argument in favor of requiring every single um, Christian musician to first attend at least four years of a good seminary before they ever start penning verse and uh, putting it to music. I just don't get it. Okay, can't take it anymore. Ears are bleeding. That's, uh, you know.
<clears throat> yeah, this, uh, in my mind, justifies my decision many years ago to give up, um, not smoking, um, not drinking, but uh, give up contemporary Christian music. Yep, this uh, shows that I made a wise, wise, wise decision all those years ago to, uh, you know, and I didn't even do it for Lent. I just gave it up cold turkey. And you know what's funny is, is I never even went through any withdrawals when I gave up contemporary Christian music. Okay, um, moving along. Um, let's see here. It's um, from newsobserver.com. Headline reads Who's in Hell? Pastor's book sparks, sparks eternal debate. Yeah, this is uh, some of the fallout now uh, from the uh, Rob Bell book, Love Wins. Um, you know, uh, I have mixed feelings about this. And uh, being a guy, I'm not really in touch with my feelings. So I got to be careful how I uh, venture out into this next you know, thing that I'm about to say. Because, you know, it, it just could be full of landmines and alligators. But... Um, Here's the uh, here's the idea. Um, not thrilled with uh, Rob Bell's book at all. It blatantly teaches heresy, and it blatantly attacks, deconstructs, demeans what the church has confessed all along, and what the church has confessed all along was clearly taught by Jesus, and that is is that Christ Jesus will return in glory to judge both the living and the dead, and that as he said. There would be those he would send into eternal punishment and others into eternal life. And all of that hinges on repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It hinges on hearing with faith the message preached, the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Rob Bell's book attacks and demeans that, but here's the deal. Those of us who've been tracking Bell for a while, okay, I think of myself and a few others in the discernment camp. I think of Ken Silva in this particular case, too. Uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with Ken Silva and his website, apprising.org, Ken has been on this, uh, he's been on to Bell for the uh, same d- amount of time as I have, if not longer. And uh, it's not hard to connect the dots. Now, here's the deal is that Rob Bell, like many heretics, okay, and especially the new emergent kind, haven't been teaching heresy by proclamation. They've been basically um, de- using teaching heresy by, te- by using deconstruction and suggestion at, at other alternatives. But when you connect the dots, when you connect all the dots, and by the way, you need to listen to today's sermon review. When you connect all the dots, it's not, it, it's not easy to figure out what it is that he's believing, teaching, and confessing, and knowing that it's not historic Christianity. Case in point is uh, a gentleman by the name of Chad Holtz. Chad and I have sparred on occasion on the internet, um, you know, in the comment, in the com boxes in, at several different blog sites, okay? Uh, uh, Ken Silva, a couple of years ago, wrote about uh, Chad Hulse's universalism. And in my conversations with Chad Hulse, he was very upfront about the fact that he learned his universalism in part as a result of reading Rob Bell's books and being exposed to Rob Bell's theology, Okay, now, for whatever reason, um, there you know, you know, 
there hasn't been a lot of warning uh, in some circles about the emergent church, and people wanted to put the best construction on it and go, well, we understand they're using deconstructing questions and that the things they're deconstructing are the historic doctrines of the Christian faith and that they're suggesting sort of kind of maybe in a suggestive kind of way alternative ways of interpreting or looking at the Bible, but uh, because they haven't put it out propositionally, well, we don't see a danger. Well, now the danger has, you know, basically leered its head. And, uh, you know, when we think of the emergent church, I think of the movie Aliens. Um, Y'all remember the movie Aliens? You know, um, well, I think the original one. Um, Something was, you know, there was something gestating inside of the human host in the movie Aliens, and it was getting ready to emerge. And, and, And when it finally emerged, everyone went, that's horrible. Kill it before it kills us. And uh, that's kind of what's happened with the uh, whole emergent theology thing. Think of it as an alien life form that has attached itself to a church host and is gestated to the point where now it's emerged. And what has emerged is clearly not biblical. It's clearly not from God. It's clearly from the other camp. And uh, now that Rob Bell has... um, shown his true colors and decided to take off the sheepskin and to bear his fangs, um, people are going, whoa, we had no idea that the emergent church was that bad. We didn't know this is where it was going. It's like you want to bang your head against a desk and go, you know, yeah, somebody pointed out the fact, I think it was uh, a listener by the name of Brandy that uh, on my Facebook wall, that this is why we uh, we in our warning we uh, there there includes such things as uh, bendy straws, duct tape, and um, anyway, you got what I'm saying. So uh, so Chad Holes is somebody who I have gone toe to toe with a few times, and uh, regarding universalism, and this goes way back. This goes you know two three years back. Well, I guess it's not that way back, but um, and uh, now that Rob Bell's book has come out, the people in his church decided to read his blog and. When they read his blog, they realized, ah, this isn't good, and now he's lost his job. But anyway, the story is uh, this: uh, who, who, this is an Associated Press story uh, posted on the uh, NewsObserver.com website in the religion section, and it was written by Tom Breen of the Associated Press. Here's what it: uh, Dateline, Durham, uh, North Carolina. When Chad Holtz lost his old belief in hell, he also lost his job. No, actually, he's had his job for quite a while. It just took a while for his congregation to figure out what was going on there. The pastor of a rural United Methodist church in North Carolina wrote a note on his Facebook page supporting, uh, uh, let's see, a pastor, that's him, uh, wrote a note on his Facebook page supporting a new book by Rob Bell, a prominent young evangelical pastor and critic of the traditional view of hell as a place of eternal torment for billions of damned souls. Two days later, Holtz was told uh, complaints from church members prompted his dismissal from Morrow's Chapel in Henderson, North Carolina. Quote, I think justice comes and judgment will happen, but but I don't think that means an eternity of torment, Holtz said. But, but I can understand why people in my church aren't ready to leave that behind. It's something I'm still grappling with myself. The debate over Bell's new book, Love Wins, has quickly spread across the evangelical precincts of the Internet, in part because of an eye-catching promotional video posted on YouTube. Bell, the pastor of of the 10,000-member Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
lays out the premise of his book while the video cuts away to an artist hand-mixing of oil paints and pastels and applying them to a blank canvas. He describes going to a uh, Christian art show where one of the pieces featured a quote of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, someone attached a note saying, Reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is, and someone knows this for sure, Bell asks in the video. In the book, Bell criticizes the belief that a select number of Christians will spend eternity in the bliss of heaven while everyone else is tormenting forever in hell. This is a misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, and forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear, writes Bell in the book. For many traditional Christians, though, Bell's new book sounds a lot like the old theological position of universalism. Yeah, yeah, the Unitarian Universalists uh, come to mind here. Uh, a heresy for many churches teaching that everyone, regardless of religious belief, will ultimately be saved by God, and that they argue dangerously misleads people about the reality of the Christian faith. Quote, I just felt like on every page he's trying to say, it's okay, said Southern Baptist Seminary President Albert Muller at a forum last week on Bell's book held at the Louisville Institution. And there's a sense in which we desperately want to say that, but the question becomes, on what basis can we say that? Anyway, you kind of get the gist of the story, but I've got uh, I've got um, sound bites here from uh, Pastor Chad Holtz discussing his dismissal because— uh, he was let go from his church as a result of endorsing uh, Rob Bell's beliefs. And, 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 you know, I'm surprised that his church finally figured it out. I mean, but the reality is, is that I've known this about Chad for several years. But he, here's Chad. There's nowhere that says uh, that you must confess a belief in a literal hell in order to be saved. Uh, we confess Jesus Christ. And, yeah, and you know, funny enough, Chad, um, saying that you confess Jesus Christ is is kind of um evasive. The question is what do you believe Jesus taught? Do you believe what he taught in his, you know, in in the uh, eyewitness testimony? Because according to the eyewitnesses, Jesus clearly taught about hell. And so you say, "Oh, well, we confess Jesus Christ." Yeah, th- which one? Which Jesus are you confessing? Are you confessing the Mormon Jesus? Are you confessing um the Jesus of the Baha'i faith, you know, the the ascended master and, uh, you know, incarnation of Baha'u'llah. I mean, what, what Jesus are—I mean, just saying you confess Jesus doesn't tell me anything. It's which Jesus are you confessing and what do you confess that he taught? Because the biblical Jesus, the historic Jesus, the Jesus who actually walked the earth, who who was crucified for our sins and rose again from the dead, made it clear that, we're, that he's our Savior and that the thing he's saving us from is the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. And that when the when the wrath of God is ultimately revealed on the last day, when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, he's going to be the spearhead. He's going to be the apex of the armies of God when they come to earth. That Jesus? See, see. Anyway, and Christ alone, losing this uh, the story of a of a literal burning hell, eternal. Uh, doesn't make you any less a Christian. In fact, I would say that uh, when we lose this contract option that says, I believe this, God will grant me this, and we fall into this, uh, this scandal of grace, this free gift that says you are... Yeah, I got to back this up because <clears throat> I got to deconstruct this deconstructing argument. 
Hang on a second here. I want you to hear it in context again because he's talking about contractual stuff. Listen, it's it's actually not what the historic Christian faith teaches, but listen. Contract option that says, I believe this, God will grant me this. Okay, yeah, the, the Christian faith does not say, if you believe this, then God will grant you this. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's the idea, okay, is that when we talk about belief, when we talk about trust, okay, when you think of the Greek words, Pistos and pistuo. Pistuo being the verb form of believing or, or trusting. And it's not just it's it's not merely belief. It's this it's this obsessive trust thing. Or you know, and pistis being the uh, the uh, the noun version of that. Here's the idea: is that faith and trust always has an object. Okay. So one of the things I frequently refer to here at, at Fighting for the Faith is that faith is like eyesight, okay? The question is not, do you have eyesight? The question is, what is your eyesight fixated on? What are you seeing, okay? So the the Christian faith does not say, if you believe a finite set of particular modernist propositions regarding God, that God will then go, oh, good, you've got, you've got the right score on the test, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you heaven, no, that's not what the Christian faith teaches. Instead, here's the idea, is that there is a true God and there's a bazillion false gods out there. There is the one true God and every other deity is a man-made deity and is a false God. So the question is, which God are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? If so, then your confession will be the same thing that the Scripture teaches, okay? You can summarize it in the Nicene Creed. You can summarize it in the Apostles' Creed. Or you can summarize it in the Augsburg Confession or the Westminster, you know, smaller catechism or, you know, things of that nature. That, that, those are summaries. So, and it's not, it's not that God is sitting there going, oh, you've got to get 100%. The question is, which God are you believing in? That's the question. If the God you believe in is the squishy, sentimental, senile old Jesus who's, you know, who's got butterscotch in his pockets and he's and he's basically like an old senile grandfather who just pats all his children on the head and regardless of what little terrors and demons they are and says, oh, here's some butterscotch. Oh, you're such a good little boy. That's okay. Yeah, no, that's not the biblical Jesus. In fact, that's an idol. That's a false God. So the question comes down back to what God are you putting your trust in? Is it the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? Or is, is it a God of your own making? In other words, you don't get to pick and choose smorgasbord style, style things that you like about God and reject the other parts of it. No, the God who reveals himself in Scripture is to be trusted in every aspect of how he has revealed himself to be. And Jesus was the premier hellfire preacher, and Jesus is God in human flesh. So when you say, I don't believe in hell, you're saying literally, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I have a God of my own making. I don't believe in the Jesus revealed in Scripture and the things that he taught in the Scripture. I believe in the Jesus of my own making. In other words, you're making your own 
God. You're making your own deity. As a result of it, the God you believe in, because we can tell by what you're confessing, isn't the God that has revealed himself in Scripture. It's an idol. It's a false God. So his little argument about the transaction, that's, it's a red herring. It, it, it's a non sequitur. That's not the issue because the Christian faith doesn't teach that. The, the Christian faith teaches that if you truly trust and believe in the God of Scripture, that your confession is going to be consistent with what he's taught and that you're not going to put yourself at odds with what Jesus has taught and what is revealed in the Scriptures. Instead, you're going to embrace that, and and you're going to confess it. And when your thoughts are in contradiction to what God has revealed, you bend the knee, and your idolatrous ideas about God go out the window, and you adopt and subscribe to what God has revealed is truth. Plain and simple. So, Liam, let me back this up again so you can hear it in context. Uh, When we lose this contract option that says, I believe this, God will grant me this, and we fall into this this scandal of grace, this free gift that says, you are saved, therefore, be who you are. Live into this reality of who you already are. I would say say that we really truly begin to understand what it means to even be a Christian. When I gave up the traditional view of hell, there were several things that um, I felt that I had lost in that and uh, also gained uh, many losses and many gains. And uh, that's where that's that's when it heated up a little bit for me. Well, I got fired. Um, I I lost my uh, role as pastor. Fired is probably a strong word. Released. Um, We saw that we did not see eye to eye. Uh, Several people read my my blog and, and felt that it was time for me to move on. God is uh... Yeah, because what you were what you were teaching is not in accord with scripture. Now the irony here is is that he was at a United Methodist church. United Methodist uh, mainline denomination is a is a mixed bag at best and for the most part is predominantly really liberal. So it it kind of comes as a surprise to me that uh, somebody like Chad Holtz uh, lost his job in the uh, United Methodist Church. Maybe he just needs to move to a more liberal precinct. <clears throat> uh, is going to provide, and I, I be- cer- certainly I believe it's. Uh, um, I feel I feel very confident and comfortable where I'm at. So there you go. That's Chad Holtz. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church! Welcome to Bellagod, how can I help you? 
Hello, I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, confessions of faith tell you what God you believe in. Either it's the true God or it's an idol of your own making. If it's the true God, what you believe about him will be consistent with what he revealed about himself in the scripture. Boy, I'm going long nowadays. My warnings are going long. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 
508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to go long on this segment, and the reason I'm going to take liberties to do that has to do with the fact that our sermon is a shorter sermon, and it's a good one. So that being the case, I'm going to exercise bad time management skills and (laughs) and just bleed on over into the second hour in this next segment because I want to cover everything here. All right, um, a gal by the name of Misty from Anaheim, California. Misty from Anaheim, California. Say hi to Mickey Mouse for me, Misty, will you? She left a just a fantastically um, pithy and right-on-the-money statement on my, um, on my Facebook wall. And here's what she said. She says, as far as Rick Warren saying that God only speaks to people who say, yes, I will do what you want me to do, what about Jonah? He did the opposite at first. (laughs) Yeah. um, Misty, uh, wow. That, um, boy, that just kind of nails the whole thing on the head, doesn't it? Uh, In fact, let me me do this. Uh, We'll just do a little comparative work. Now that she's mentioned it, I thought what I would do is I would go into uh, Rick Warren's um, um, sermon and play for you the relevant soundbite where he he is... uh, laying out uh what he you know one of his points here as to who it is that actually hears from God and then just kind of compare it to the biblical text like you know in the book excuse me or the book of Jonah you know see if uh, what Warren is saying is actually true because I think Misty um, nailed it on the head so here's Rick Warren and uh, this is the important relevant part from his sermon and then we'll just take a look at the book of Jonah here we go now the fourth thing If I want to hear God speak, I must cooperate with what he says. Cooperate. I must just obey him. I must do what he tells me to do. I cultivate an open open mind. I allocate time to listen. I eliminate the distractions. And I cooperate with what he says. Whatever he tells me to do, I do it. Now, here's the very important key. God speaks to people who decide in advance they're going to do what he tells them to do even before he tells them. Hmm. Hmm. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Hmm. It's saying yes in advance. So God, I don't know what you want me to do with my life. If you want me to move, I'll move. If you want me to go to school, I'll go to school. If you want me to get married, I'll get married. If you want me to leave this job, I'll leave this job. I'm telling you in advance, my answer to whatever you tell me is yes. Before you even tell me, my answer is, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. And that's the person God speaks to. Now, if you... Yeah, because, you know, Jonah was so willing uh, in advance to do... Again, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. 
And that's the person God speaks to. Now, if you say, God, tell me what you want to do, and then I'll decide if I like your plan or mine. God isn't going to waste his breath on you. God doesn't give you his will and his word so you can debate it. Yeah, you know, because just like Jonah, I mean, he was just willing and able right at the beginning, you know. And so if you say, now, God, you tell me if you want me to get this new job or not take that job. And then I'll decide. And God said, no, you just go ahead and decide on your own. If you're making the decision, you decide on your own. What you must do is in advance say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, because that was Jonah's prayer, I'm sure. Um, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Um, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. It makes you wonder if um, Rick Warren, that doctrine that he was teaching there about you know God won't talk to you until you say yes in advance, is actually true because um, we seem to have biblical evidence that uh, God is God and we're not, and He'll say what He's going to say to us whether we want to hear it or not, or whether we want to obey it or not, whether we have signed some kind of a contractual statement in advance saying, okay, whatever you want to do, God, I'll do it. Yeah, it seems like God has a way of kind of breaking in and messing all that kind of stuff up. Hmm. All right. Um, moving along. Yeah, we're going to be uh, reading uh, something from Rob Bell, which means that we have to pl- – uh, not Rob Bell, but Brian McLaren. When the so we got to groove out here to the age of Aquarius. And Jupiter All right, yeah, it's it's been a while since we've done a full-blown Brian McLaren update. Well, uh, yeah, Brian McLaren, uh, he, he and uh, Albert Muller, they're not, their friendship seems to be falling apart. <laughs> not that they ever really had one. But um, uh, uh, Brian McLaren has decided that he's going to weigh in. And, and here's how the series of events goes, okay? Rob Bell writes book. Albert Muller reads book. Albert Muller uh, writes an uh, article about Rob Bell's book talking about how uh, it is the reemergence of liberalism. Brian McLaren reads Albert Muller's crit- criticism of, of Rob Bell and decides he's got to chime in. So he chimes in on his blog, and then 
Albert Moeller reads Brian McLaren's uh, uh, chiming in uh, in order to you know come to Bell's rescue, and so Albert Moeller then chimes in. That's the series of events. So um, this segment is entitled "McLaren Defends Bell Against Moeller," and Moeller responds. I could have just said it that way, you know, but um, I just wanted to make sure that you kind of got how the whole chain of events works in this. And uh, I want to read McLaren's piece first before I read Albert Mueller's response. By the way, a couple of days ago, I said I want to read a Tim Challies thing. Hopefully tomorrow. I had to put that into the back burner because this it didn't fit with today's theme. Anyway, Brian McLaren writes, he says, the name of it is Will Love Wins Win. Uh, We're early in the first inning. McLaren writes, he says, because of my own experience as a writer, I've been anticipating the baptism in hot water or worse, uh, boiling oil, uh, that Rob Bell, uh, that Rob Bell was about to experience with the publication of Love Wins. And because of the old saying that it's not the attacks of your critics, but the silence of your friends that hurts the most, I've been looking for an opportunity to speak in Rob's defense. I couldn't help but predict who would be the first at bat with a critique what they would say and how they would say it. A prominent Southern Baptist leader, Dr. Albert Muller, put it well, quote, we have seen this all before. His response to Rob Bell's book is in an article under the title, will be judged by fans, a veritable home run of a response. It stirred up a few responses, which I'd like to share. <clears throat> Dr. Muller rounded first base by articulating a claim that goes along these lines, quote, Our view is the biblical view, so all who oppose it oppose the Bible. Here's how he said it, quote, We have no right to determine which story of the gospel we prefer or think is most compelling. We must deal with the gospel that we received from Christ and the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the church, suggesting that some other story is better or more attractive than that story is an audacity of breathtaking proportions. The church is bound to the story revealed in the Bible and in all of the Bible, every word of it. That was Dr. Muller, and I would say amen and amen to that. But of course, Brian McLaren is a Jacques Derrida type um, deconstructionist, postmodern deconstructionist. So watch this. Of course, Dr. Muller is right to say that the gospel isn't simply a ball of silly putty that we can mold to our liking, although sadly, any cursory study of church history shows how often we Christians have done so. But he is wrong to assume that, that Rob is saying his story is better than Jesus' story. Rather, Rob is suggesting that Jesus' original story, as he interprets it, is better than the version many uh, hold and proclaim today. He's making a distinction, nuanced uh, to some, uh, obvious to others, between the actual original gospel and the imperfect versions or approximations of it that any of us proclaim. He wants to be he wants to be bound to that original story rather than a than to a popular, perhaps the most popular in some settings, version of it. Again, notice that uh, this is kind of new territory for the emergence, and that is is that they're claiming that their story is their gospel is what Jesus originally intended. They're they're uh, basically making a repristination type of argument here. Uh, the problem is, is that the uh, <clears throat> the words of the uh, actual Bible don't uh, agree with them, and church history, you know, doesn't isn't in their favor either. 
But anyway, he said, uh, McLaren continues, he says, now communication is nearly always tricky. As many of us who are married or our parents know, the speaker has a meaning which is encoded in symbols. These are words which then must be decoded by the receiver. That decoding process is subject to all kinds of static. For example, interference from the biases, fears, hopes, politics, vocabulary, and other characteristics of the receiver or the receiver's community. If the receiver then tries to pass the meaning as he has decoded it onto others, there is more encoding and decoding and more static. That's why with so much encoding and decoding and recoding going on, the challenge of communication across many cultural time zones is downright monumental. Uh, by the way, if you say that, that, that that's all overcome by good scholarship or the Holy Spirit, you still have a problem since so many people who sincerely seek to follow the principles of good scholarship or the promptings of the Spirit may come up with such wildly different versions of Christianity. This is a classic, classic postmodern deconstructionist argument. And at the end of the day, this is employed to basically mean what what you say and what I say and what I think and what you think, yeah, we got to humbly just kind of walk together and go, well, none of us is probably, it would be really arrogant of either one of us to say that we've got to figure it out better than the other person. But isn't that exactly what Rob Bell was doing in his book? I've read it several times and the answer is yes. Um, but <clears throat> here's the other part of it. And this is, this is the fun little part. The uh, postmodern deconstructionists who uh, love to employ this particular tactic, um, they use words, you know, symbols. They encode what they mean in words and symbols, and they expect you to be able to decode it just fine. Um, If Rob, if uh, McLaren was consistent, you know, we'd have to do, you know, well, we'd have to basically say things like um i can't i, I can't he- I, I can't brian i can't hear you you're not coming in yeah hello brian are you there i i i, I can't hear you yes brian yeah i i you're not coming in there brian um i i was reading your uh your your article here and and you know and can you say that again brian i would you you what you were saying was encoded in, in words and are you there Brian yeah yeah here's the deal all the deconstructionists they expect you to deconstruct the Bible but not deconstruct their text I mean I mean I mean we should have stopped reading at this point let me read this again now communication is nearly always tricky. And any of us who are married and our parents know the speaker has meaning which is encoded in symbols, which are words, which then must be decoded by the receiver. And that decoding process is subject to all kinds of static, for example, interference from biases, fears, hopes, politics, vocabulary, and other characteristics. You know, Brian, are you there? Hello? I, I, I'm sorry. I'm getting static on the line. I, I can't. I, I'm having a hard time reading and decoding your words, Brian. Hello? Yeah. Notice he used words to talk about this. 
<clears throat> I continue. Uh, McLaren says, Our versions, mine included, are all then human interpretations of the gospel of Christ and the apostles, and human interpretations of the original messages are not exactly the same as the original message. Some are more true to the original and some less, but no articulation of the gospel today can presume to be exactly identical to the original meaning Christ and the apostles proclaimed. That doesn't mean we can't proclaim anything with confidence, but it demands a proper and humble confidence rather than a naive and excessive confidence. You know, and here's the problem is, is that I, I have no confidence that I'm even understanding what Brian McLaren is saying here because I, I think his words are getting... Gu- gu- Brian, I, I'm losing you, man. I'm... I, yeah, no, nothing's coming through here. Yeah, we've lost you, Brian. Um... Yeah, you see what's going on here? Uh-huh. Now, I know Rob, and I'm quite certain he, like many of us, started questioning the interpretation of the gospel he received, not because he was looking for a more palatable or popular version. Truth is, he was already wildly... it was. He was already wildly popular as a megachurch pastor and best-selling author. A controversial book like this risks his popularity. It doesn't guarantee to increase it. He started questioning the... Con- uh, the um, interpretation slash version he received because he became convinced from studying scripture itself. No, 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 no. He became, he fell into the influence of um, Buddhist thought in yeah, emergence theory. Uh, sorry. Um, and uh, postmodern deconstructionism. And he started questioning the interpretation. Okay. That he, um, and, uh, and uh, he, many of us may be wrong, but if we're wrong, it's not simply because we're trying to pander to, Contemporary culture, a problematic term in itself, which one? Fox News culture, Bill Maher culture, Christianity Today culture, Christian century culture. Yes, that's Dr. Mueller's interpretation of our motive, but his interpretation, I suggest, isn't infallible. Next, Dr. Mueller rounded second base with this. Bell's argument is centered in his affirmation of God's loving character, but he alienates love from justice and holiness Love is divorced from holiness and becomes more sentimentality. Not so fast on at least two counts. First, many of us are concerned about the traditional doctrine of hell for reasons of justice and holiness, not mere sentimentality. Even putting God's loving nature aside for a moment, it's very hard to square the idea of eternal conscious torment with a just or holy God, especially when Jesus repeatedly encourages us to trust God as a just and holy father in contrast to human fathers who Jesus points out can be downright evil. If a human father decides to throw his child into a fireplace for just 10 seconds as punishment for disobedience, we wouldn't, fa- we wouldn't fault the father simply for being unsentimental. We would, s- we would say such behavior was unholy, an act of torture in violation of our most fundamental sense of justice. Any definition of justice and holiness that involves being unsatisfied unless the imperfect are suffering eternal agony seems to many of us as unworthy of a human being. And if so, how much more unworthy of God, whose justice must be better than our own? Yeah, McLaren goes on for quite some time, but um, yeah, at least hey, you know, at least the emergents have finally bared their fangs and gotten rid of the um, the sheepskin. <clears throat> Albert Muller's response to Brian McLaren in the, from the AlbertMuller.com website. The uh, blog post entitled, A Theological Conversation Worth Having, A Response to Brian McLaren. It's kind of fun watching these two going at it. Um, um, Some theological disputes amount to very little and serve mostly as exercises in missing the point. 
Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. If indeed there is a point. Other doctrinal exchanges are quite different and deal with matters of central and essential concern to the Christian faith. The first sort of dispute is a waste of precious time and energy and should be avoided at all costs. Here, here. The second sort of debate is a matter of both urgency and importance. The church cannot avoid and should not seek to evade this kind of theological conversation. That is why a recent essay by Brian McLaren helps us to understand what is at stake in the controversy over Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins. Beyond this, his argument reveals a great deal about the actual beliefs and trajectories of what has become known as the emerging church. As such, his essay is a welcome addition to this important conversation. McLaren, perhaps best known uh, of the leaders in the emerging church, seeks to defend Rob Bell and to act as his friend. He says that he has been waiting for an opportunity to speak in Bell's defense, and evidently my essay, We Have Seen All This Before, Rob Bell and the Reemergence of Liberal Theology, afforded McLaren the opportunity that he was seeking. In his own way, uh, quote, Will love, uh, Will love wins win, we're early in the first inning. McLaren uses a baseball metaphor to reject my critique of Rob Bell's arguments. He asserts that I, quote, rounded first base by affirming a clear understanding of the gospel is found in scriptures and then suggesting that Rob Bell's proposals fall short of the gospel. My problem, according to McLaren, is that I assume that a clear understanding of the gospel is even possible. According to McLaren, the complexities of interpretation render this claim implausible. In McLaren's words, quote, now, communication is nearly always tricky, as any of us who are married or our parents know. The speaker has a meaning which he encodes in symbols, that is, or words, which then must be decoded by the receiver. That decoding process is subject to all kinds of static, for example, interference from the biases, fears, hopes, politics, vocabulary, and other characteristics of the receiver or the receiver's community. If the receiver then tries to pass the meaning as he has decoded it onto others, there's more encoding and decoding and more static. That's why with so much encoding and decoding and recoding going on, the challenge of communication across many cultural time zones is just downright monumental. And yet I point out the fact that um, Brian McLaren um, just assumes that uh, we understand that he's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, we're, we're losing you, Brian. Yeah, you used words there, and I in, in, the, in the decoding and re-encoding process here, I couldn't figure out what you were saying. <clears throat> Muller continues, he says, Communication is indeed nearly always tricky, but McLaren's argument leads to interpretive nihilism. Can we really not know what the gospel is? If this is true, the church is left with no coherent message at all. All of our attempts to define the right form of the gospel are just human interpretations. He insists, and we must avoid excessive confidence in any telling of the gospel story. McLaren warns that we must avoid a naive and excessive confidence, but that we can retain a humble confidence. But his argument leaves us with very little idea of how this humble confidence is to be found, since no articulation of the gospel today can presume to be exactly identical to the original meaning Christ and the apostles proclaimed. That statement leaves us only with approximations of the gospel, some presumably better, some worse. And we would be, and we would in fact be left with nothing more precise or authoritative than that, than 
that but for one thing. Well, we have the Bible. We are absolutely dependent upon the New Testament way of telling the gospel of Christ, and the apostles were determined to pass along the gospel as a clear and understandable message to others. This is why Paul instructed Timothy to, quote, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and to, quote, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. If we cannot know the gospel, what the gospel is, then there's no such thing as the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3. If so, we have nothing definitive to say. The issues of communication are real, and we should never seek to minimize the challenge of interpretation. But the clarity, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture are precisely the means whereby the Lord preserves his church in spirit and in truth. It is one thing to cite the challenge of interpretation. It is another thing altogether to suggest that we are left with an insurmountable problem and an indefinite message. This flies directly in the face of biblical claims and commands. McLaren also accuses me, that's Rob Muller, of misreading Rob Bell's motivation for writing the book. He rejects my assertion that Bell is driven by a desire to present Christianity in a new way to those who find traditional forms, uh, the traditional form of the gospel impossible to believe, especially in terms of hell and everlasting torment. Instead, McLaren argues that Bell, quote, started questioning the interpretation of the gospel that he received. Later, McLaren argues that I misunderstood Bell by suggesting that he wrote the book out of concern for people who are put off by the doctrine of hell. But where did I get this idea? Rob Bell plainly states his concern and motivation in the opening pages of Love Wins. My argument is not an inference. It is just a citation of what Bell himself asserted. With explicit reference to hell in the very next paragraph, Bell wrote this, quote, I've written this book for all those everywhere who have who have heard some version of the Jesus story that caused their pulse rate to rise, their stomach to churn, and their heart to utter these resolute words. I would never be part of that. I am just taking Rob Bell at his word, and his words are clear. McLaren rejects what he then calls my way of rounding second base, he cites my argument that Bell separates God's love from his holiness and presents a sentimental idea of love in place of the biblical theology of God's love. McLaren argues that the traditional understanding of hell presents a God who is not loving even by human standards. In McLaren's own words, quote, If a human father decided to throw his child into a fireplace for just 10 seconds as punishment for disobedience, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fault that father simply for being unsentimental. We would say such behavior was unholy, an act of torture in violation of our most fundamental sense of justice. Any definition of justice and holiness that involves being unsatisfied unless the imperfect are suffering eternal agony seems to many of us as an un, as unworthy of a human being, and if so, how much more unworthy of God, whose justice must be better than our own. That argument is straightforward enough, and we need to look at it closely, Muller points out. The central problem with McLaren's formulation is that is that such logic destroys any faithfulness to the totality of God's self-revelation about himself. It presumes to judge God by human conceptions of love, and this is precisely what God himself rejects. 
he will not allow himself to be judged by humans. We simply do not have an adequate moral vantage point from which to make judgments about the character of God. We are, in all, in all things, utterly dependent upon God's self-revelation and self-definition. We do not know who God is by knowing what love is. We understand love by knowing who God is. But McLaren seems quite ready to judge God by human standards of love and justice. In his most important uh, book, A New Kind of Christianity, McLaren rejects the Genesis account of God's actions in the story of Noah, describing the story as profoundly disturbing. As he concluded, quote, In this light, a God who mandates an intentional supernatural disaster leading to unparalleled genocide is hardly worthy of belief, much less worship. He responds uh, responds to other texts in a similar way. But God explicitly rejects, rejects such a human determination of his character. Quote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh, as the prophet Isaiah declared, Isaiah 55, verse 8. Instead, God defines his loving character like this, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. McLaren's rejection of the Noah account is based on his own view of of the Bible, a truly radical view that taken in full force explains McLaren's theological method and positions. He rejects the Bible as a legal constitution and proposes that it be seen as a community library that reveals an, 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 an evolving human understanding of God, one in which some texts effectively nullify other texts. He asserts that there can be no new kind of Christian faith without a new approach to the Bible. That statement is profoundly true, and it points to a central problem. McLaren's new approach to the Bible is a straightforward and amazingly honest call to relativize passages that are deemed to be inferior or unacceptable. We should not wonder that he, like Bell, argues against the traditional doctrine of hell. We should also not wonder, then, that McLaren, like Rob Bell's arguments, for finding what he considers to be better ways of telling the Jesus story. McLaren then moves to another major point in his essay, quote, Next, Dr. Muller races around third base with the popular epithet, epithet liberal. He accuses those of us who differ with the prevailing view on hell as pushing Protestant liberalism just about a, a, a century late. That is just a reissue of the powerless message of theological liberalism. This is the traditional liberal line. Well, I do not use liberal as an epithet, though such usage is regrettably common. I teach systematic and historical theology, and in the theological world, the term liberal has a very clear meaning, especially when associated with the movement known clearly enough as Protestant liberalism. My argument that the emerging church in general and Rob Bell's new book in particular is a presentation of Protestant liberalism is simply true and has been noted by other readers of Bell's book, including some congenial to him. 
he practically repeats arguments put forth by leading liberal figures such as Rudolf Bultmann, including his argument that modern men and women simply do not believe in heaven and hell. Bultmann called for a method of demythologizing the New Testament in order to remove what he then called its mythological elements. Rob Bell's proposals in Love Wins are really just a form of Bultmannianism light. Finally, McLaren agrees with me at home plate, though, with a very different application. Says McLaren, finally, Dr. Mueller strides across home plate with a point I actually agree with. Quote, at the end of the day, a secular society feels no need to attend or support secularized churches with a secularized theology. True enough, if by secular you mean without any reference to God, but the rub many who identify as conservatives, I think, is that for them, secularism only comes in one flavor, liberal. To more and more of us these days, conservative evangelical-slash-fundamentalist theology looks and sounds more like secular conservatism, economic and political, simply dressed up in religious language. If that's the case, even if Dr. Mueller is right in every detail of his critique, he'd still be wise to apply the flip side of his warning to his own beloved community. Oh, man. Do you feel McLaren seething there, here? Muller responds, in, and in return, I must say that McLaren lands a firm punch with this statement. He is profoundly right in seeing much of presumably conservative Christianity as a sellout to the idols of the day in a new form of culture Christianity. He is right to challenge us to call this what it is and to root it out. But if we follow his own methodology and program, how could we do this? If we cannot know what the gospel really is, if we cannot know the gospel or any definitive terms, how can we know a false gospel when we see one? Thankfully, we can know. We do know. We are not left in the dark, and we do not have only a community library to consult. We have the Bible and all of the Bible. We are accountable to it All And it is all true, trustworthy, authoritative, sufficient, and with the aid of the Holy Spirit, clear in its message. This is why a response to Love Wins was necessary and why a response to Brian, Brian McLaren is now in order. He is to be credited with taking theology seriously, with making clear arguments, and with a willingness to engage the conversation. I return as candor with my own, and I am even am ever more convinced of why this controversy is both inevitable and clarifying. We are all we are talking about two rival understandings of the gospel here, two very different understandings of theology, gospel, Bible, doctrine, and the totality of the Christian faith. Both sides of this controversy understand what is at stake, and that, dear reader, is why this conversation must continue. And Dr. Muller is right. In the emergent camp, we are seeing the emergence of a rival gospel, a rival theology, a rival message. And if it wins the day, every place that it wins the day, every congregation where it wins the day, the true biblical gospel, the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins gets snuffed out and replaced with a cheap Plastic banana, $3 bill, counterfeit. That's what's at stake. Worth passing along. 
All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we have a fantastic sermon from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller that fits this topic perfectly. You do not want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. As you're listening to this sermon, ask yourself, who sounds more like Jesus? Brian McLaren or Albert Muller? Yeah, it's this is a mucho importante way, mucho importante way of looking at this. Let's cue up the sermon review music. The 
good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller presiding. Name of the sermon? Tempted for You. Now, I have to warn you ahead of time. There's a couple of spots in the sermon where the audio quality is not good. Yeah, it's not good. Don't let that bother you. We'll just kind of slug through it. It resol- Each time it gets bad, it resolves quick. So you just need to know that. And this sermon is, um, well, it's based on the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to read that before we do the sermon from Matthew chapter 4. All right, I'm going to kill the music here. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 4. I will begin reading at verse 1. This is the text that forms the basis of the sermon. I read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came, and they were ministering to him. This is the gospel reading that forms the basis of this sermon entitled, Tempted for you. Here's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I will be interrupting him, just so you know. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, the fall in the garden and the temptation of Jesus. These are two foundational texts for the church and for our families For we too are constantly being tempted by the devil, troubled by him. He is constantly coming to us, asking us to question God's word and the good gifts that the Lord gives. To dig into the text, and especially the text of the temptation, we need to first consider two other texts. The first one is the Old Testament that we had. And then the second is the baptism of our Lord Jesus. We have to go to the garden and the river before we go to the wilderness. So we turn our attention first to the garden. 
Because when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was not the first time the devil had come to tempt a person. When the Lord created the world in the very beginning, he looked and he saw that everything was good, very good, in fact. He planted a garden in Eden, and he put Adam and Eve there, and he gave them everything that they needed. In fact, he gave everything into their hands. They were to have delight in their dominion over creation. They had everything except for one tree, the fruit of one plant, the knowledge of good and evil. For the Lord wanted Adam and Eve only to know good and not to know evil. But the devil breaks into paradise to tempt Adam and to deceive them, Adam and Eve in the garden, and he causes them to question the words of the Lord. Remember how it was? The devil says to Adam and Eve, Did God really say? And then... Surely you will not die. And it was all downhill from there. Eve listened to the words of the devil instead of the words of her Lord. She ate the fruit. She gave some to Adam, and he ate. And at that moment, creation was plunged into sin and death. The, 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 the crunch from Adam biting into the fruit was the sound of the world crashing into the grave. We'll note a few things about this temptation that help us when we go with our Lord into the wilderness. The first is this. The devil is always trying to undo what God has done. The devil is always fighting against the Lord. He always hates what is good. Second, the devil always enlists our own will into his wicked schemes. That is, in fact, what temptation is. The, the devil doesn't take the fruit from the tree and pluck it himself and, and, and sneak it into Eve's mouth while she's sleeping. The devil doesn't take the forbidden fruit and, and put it down Adam's throat like you do when you're feeding medicine to your dog. He doesn't do that. He, he lets Adam and Eve do it himself. In fact, the devil tricks Adam and Eve into thinking that eating this fruit is good and right so that they do it. And this is because the devil wants us as partners in his crime. He, he wants them not just to be fallen and dead, but guilty. The third thing we note about this is that the devil was tempting Adam and Eve to doubt God's word. And this is his fundamental temptation. When you boil all the devil's temptations down to their essence, this is what he's saying. God is a liar. You cannot trust him. And Adam and Eve believed the devil. They trusted the devil and their own reason instead of God's word. The fourth thing we want to notice, and perhaps the most wonderful is that when God comes to find Adam and Eve in their fallen state, He gives them, instead of destruction, a promise. The promise of the seed who would come and be crushed by the devil, but would in return crush him. That's the original temptation in the garden, and the result was original sin. A world saturated in sin and darkness and death because of the temptation of the devil. Now, fast forward some thousands of years to the Jordan's River and the Lord's baptism there. 
This is the other piece of backstory that we need for the, for the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. John's in the, John's in the Jordan River and he's baptizing all the Jews that were coming for repentance. That is, sorrow over their sin. Let's try this. Repentance. Sorrow over their sin and faith in the forgiveness of their sins. John was there in the Jordan River cleansing people's consciences. Jesus, his cousin, comes down to him to be baptized as well. And John rightly notes that Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Jesus has never done anything wrong. He's never said anything wrong. He's never thought anything wrong. Jesus is the only one who never, ever would have needed forgiveness of his sins because he didn't have any sins. But Jesus compels John to baptize him. And when he does, the heavens open up. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends and lands on Jesus and a voice comes from heaven saying, the voice of God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, we want to note a few things about the text. First, that Jesus in his baptism is being publicly anointed and identified as the Messiah, the one who would provide for the salvation of the entire world. He bears the Holy Spirit in full measure. Jesus is there identified as the promised child, the seed that God promised to Adam and Eve who would overthrow the devil. He's marked as that one. And so he's marked with a target for the devil. The second thing to notice about the baptism of Jesus is that he, Jesus, is given these blessed and marvelous words from the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Remember those words because when our Lord Jesus is driven to the wilderness, these are the words that the devil attacks. It is then immediately after the Lord's baptism that Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. He's there for 40 days without food or drink, and he's hungry. This is good for us to know, that if Jesus doesn't eat, he gets hungry because he was a man. He has a body that needs food, and it is being withheld from him. Jesus is suffering, and it's not a pretend suffering. It's a real suffering for you. And in the midst of that suffering, and in the midst of Jesus' weakness of the flesh, the devil comes to him to tempt him. Now, a lot is at stake in this contest. The devil knows it, and so does Jesus. If Jesus were to succumb to the devil's temptations, then humanity would be lost forever. The devil would win, and we, dear saints, would have no hope of eternal life. So the devil mounts his attack with Jesus with full force, but he does what he's always done and what has always worked. He tempts Jesus to doubt God's word. And, note this, it's not just any word. The devil is tempting Jesus to doubt the word that God the Father spoke to him in his baptism. God the Father says of Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the devil comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, each time, If you truly are God's son, if that word is really true, you see it? He tempts him to doubt his baptism. 
But Jesus does not fall. He stands there in the wilderness, wheezed neat from hunger, and he throws the word, the Lord's word back at the devil. Jesus does not fight the devil with his own strength, with his divine power, but he fights the devil with the Lord's word. And in this way, he is our example, for God's word is our only weapon to fight the devil. Jesus throws the word in the devil's face. Our friend Martin Luther expounds on this, and this is an extended quote from the large catechism. When Luther's talking about the third commandment, he says this, For let me tell you this, even though you know the Lord's word perfectly and are already a master in all things, and he's being a bit facetious, still you are daily in the dominion of the devil who ceases neither day nor night to steal unaware upon you to kindle in your heart unbelief and wicked thoughts against the, for, uh, against the Lord's word and all the commandments. Therefore you must always have God's word in your heart, upon your lips and in your ears. For where the heart is idle and the word does not sound, the devil breaks in and has done the damage before we're even aware of it. On the other hand, such is the efficacy of the Word, the power of God's Word, whenever it is seriously contemplated, heard, and used, that it is bound never to be without fruit, but always awakens new understanding, pleasure, and devoutness, and produces a pure heart and pure thoughts. For these words of the Scripture are not inoperative or dead, but creative living words. And even though no other interest or necessity impel us, yet this ought to urge everyone to the Word, because the devil is put to right and driven away. We see it happening in the wilderness. The devil tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread, and Jesus replies by quoting the Scriptures. Deuteronomy, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil tempts Jesus to jump off the top of the temple, even misquoting the Bible to trick him, and Jesus responds again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, the devil tempts Jesus by offering to him the entire world. If only Jesus would go down on his knees and worship him, and Jesus a third time quotes the Scriptures. Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And the devil leaves him for a while. Leaves him, in fact, until he would revisit him by Judas' betrayal. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil is the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve faced and fell. The tactic is the same. The tactic is the same. So at the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, who does Jesus sound more like? I really should say, who sounds more like Jesus? Brian McLaren or Albert Muller? Again, let me read to you McLaren's statement in his defense of Rob Bell. Communication is nearly always tricky, as, as any of us who are married or parents know. Speaker has, has a meaning which is encoded in symbols and words, which then must be decoded by the receiver. 
That decoding process is subject to all kinds of static, for example, interference from the biases, fears, and hopes, and politics, and vocabulary, and other characteristics of the receiver or the receiver's community. If the receiver then tries to pass the meaning as he has decoded it onto others, there's, there's more encoding and decoding and more static. That's why with so much encoding and decoding and recoding going on, uh, the challenges of communication across many cultural time zones is just downright monumental. Albert Muller's response. Communication indeed is nearly always tricky. But McLaren's argument leads to interpretive nihilism. Can we really not know what the gospel is? If this is true, the church is left with no coherent message at all. All of our attempts to define the right form of the gospel are just human interpretations, he insists. And we must avoid excessive confidence in any telling of the gospel story. McLaren warns that we must avoid a, quote, naive, excessive confidence, but that we can retain a humble confidence. But his argument leaves us with very little idea of how this humble confidence is to be found, since no articulation of the gospel today can presume to be exactly identical to the original meaning Christ and the apostles proclaimed. That statement leaves us with only approximations of the gospel, some presumably better, some worse, and we would in fact be left with nothing more than nothing more precise or authoritative than but for one thing. We have the Bible. We are absolutely dependent upon the New Testament way of telling the gospel of Christ, and the apostles were determined to pass along the gospel as a clear and understandable message to others. This is why Paul instructed Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. If we cannot know what the gospel is, then there is no such thing as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3. If so, we have nothing definitive to say. McLaren's argument is nothing more than the postmodern subterfuge version of Satan's temptation. The temptation to cause you to doubt and disbelieve God's word. And once that occurs, anything goes. And the first thing that goes is Christ in his cross, and it's replaced with a false Jesus and an idol of your own making, or the making of some liberal idol smith. You see the connection? When we hear Brian McLaren pen the words about not being able to understand or because of uh, encoding and decoding and recoding and, and, and not being able to know with any specificity what the gospel actually is or means, we should hear the voice of Satan. Because that's what we are truly hearing. And Muller's defense is the same defense that Jesus gave, and it's our only defense to parry back with the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. God has spoken in his word, and he said this. And that doesn't jive with what McLaren is saying, because McLaren is playing the role of the serpent. We continue. So our Lord is tempted. 
But what, dear saints, is the Holy Spirit teaching us by these texts? What are we to learn? This is one of the most important texts, again, for us to consider, and there is simply no way for us to cover all of these things this morning. But maybe five things to keep in your mind about our fighting against temptation. The first is this. The devil hates you. Never forget that. When the devil comes to tempt you, he acts like he's the one that loves you and that God is the one that's against you. Here, Jesus, here's some bread. Eat it. See how much I care? God said he was your father, but look, he's left you out in the the wilderness without a crumb to eat. See how much the devil cares about Jesus? Right. Same tactic. Look at McLaren. Look at Bell. Oh, God, the the God of Christianity doesn't love you if he would send anybody to hell. We love you. We're going to tell you the truth. The God we believe in accepts everybody just the way they are. And that's how he always does it for you, too. Like he loves you more than God. And all the while he has his eyes on your destruction. Curse God and die. That was the temptation from the devil for the prophet Job. How could God let you have all this misery and all this suffering? How could God let everything go wrong in this world? He must hate you, but I have a way out. I love you, says the devil, but he's lying. He wants you in hell with him. The second thing to remember is is that the battleground of the devil's temptation is your will. Your conscience. He wants to enlist you to have you on his side of things. He wants you to reach out and take hold of whatever it is that God has forbidden. He will very rarely force feed sin and destruction. He will very rarely stuff it down your mouth because he wants you to do it. Because when you say what you ought not to say, or when you do what you ought not to do, or when you think what you ought not to think, or when you fail to say, do, and think what you ought to fail, what you ought to do, say, and think, then you are the guilty one. And the devil loves that. The devil loves it when you have a guilty conscience so that he can alienate you from God's forgiveness. The third thing to remember is that the devil is always tempting us to doubt God's word. Just like it was in the garden and just like he did to Jesus in the wilderness. And perhaps we can be even more specific. For while the devil would love for us to doubt God's commandments and all of the scriptures, to doubt even that the scriptures were inspired by God and inerrant. The devil would love for us to doubt all of these things. There's one specific word that the devil is constantly attacking, the word that the Heavenly Father spoke to you in your baptism, the word of God calling you his child, putting his name on you, the word that forgives you your sins and gives you the the sure promise of eternal life, the word, you are my son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased, that word, that you are forgiven, that you have eternal life, 
that God loves you and that nothing can undo his love. The devil wants you to doubt that, to forget that, to think that that doesn't matter. He always attacks your baptism. But fourth, the Lord has not left us defenseless. He has given us a tool for fighting the devil, and that is the Word of God. God's Word is to the devil like the... You remember the old fumigation cans that you used to have? Like the old fumigation cans are to the roaches. He can't stand God's Word. It drives him crazy. When we read and speak and meditate on the Scriptures and pray the Scriptures, it drives the devil away. Fifth, and finally, and most importantly, unlike Jesus, we constantly fall for the devil's temptation. We constantly sin. We constantly believe his words instead of the words of our Lord. Unlike Jesus, we do doubt God's word. We do doubt his love. We do doubt the forgiveness of sin that he won for us on the cross. We do doubt that he loves us above all things. And that is why it is so important that Jesus in the wilderness was not just there as our example. Because if Jesus is only our example, then it is pure law and drives us to despair. But Jesus is not in the wilderness just to show us how to do to beat the devil. He is in the wilderness as our Savior, defeating the devil for us, standing where we have not stood, winning where we have lost, overcoming where we have failed. Jesus in the wilderness is our champion. He is the one who holds the field forever. He is the one who overthrows the devil by his death for us. He took upon himself flesh and blood for this very reason, so that he could be tempted like us and yet stand, so that he could suffer in our place and rise again, so that he could die and come back to life all for you. And this, dear saints, in the midst of all of the temptations of this life, in the midst of all of life's troubles, in the midst of all of the fiery darts and flaming arrows of the devil, this is our comfort and our peace that Jesus has withstood the devil for us, that Jesus has died to destroy him, and that this Jesus who stood in the wilderness where Adam and Eve fell, who stood where you and I fall, this Jesus stands now for you, praying to the Father on your behalf and forgiving your sins. This is our sure comfort and our sure peace, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. And now may the peace of God the peace which passes all understanding. May it guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You see, when you have that sure and certain word, when you can confidently know what the gospel is, then you know that you have peace with God because of what Christ has done for you. Brian McLaren's way of approaching the scriptures robs you of that. Why? Because that's the devil's tool to cause you to doubt. 
to make it so that you don't have confidence. You don't know with certainty that God cares about you, that Christ died for you. And all of it's in the name of offering you a loving God, a loving God who would never send anybody to hell. But that God doesn't exist. And what you get stolen from you is the forgiveness of your sins and confidence that Christ has died for your sins or confidence in the word that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All under the guise of offering you a loving God in return for the hateful, mean old God who doesn't love people because he sends people to hell. Those are not the words of the God of the Bible. When McLaren and Bell offer you their loving God, behind their loving God is the one who hates you, Satan, who wants you to spend eternity with him in the lake of fire. All offered in the name of a loving God. But that God doesn't exist, let alone love you. The one who truly loves you is the one who came to earth for you and was tempted for you and was crucified for you and rose again for you. The one who offers you full forgiveness of sins won by his vicarious death on the cross for you. So who are you going to believe? The one who says you can't know what the Bible says and it, you know, cuz it's so complicated cuz of all the encoding and recoding and decoding and and all that stuff. Or are you going to understand that we can know what the sound words of scripture teach? Because the gospel is so simple. It's recorded for us in no uncertain terms in Corinthians chapter 15. But what I received as a first importance I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Yeah, you can know it. And you can know it with confidence. And you can know it with audacious certainty. I don't know if that those two words go together. You don't need to be humble about it. You don't need to think, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No. It's so simple because it's been compressed down to such a simple statement. Christ died for our sins. If you're not sure what that means, read Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Or you can go to 2 Corinthians. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. We have peace with God because of what Christ has done. These are not ambiguous words. These are clear. These don't need to be decoded, recoded, encoded, and all that other stuff. It's plain and simple words, nouns and verbs. We use them all the time. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be listening to this program. I mean, using McLaren's deconstructive postmodernity, I I don't even know why you would possibly even be listening to this radio program because everything I said should make no sense to you. I mean, at the end of the day, you should basically be saying, well, 
I'm not sure what Chris said. I'm just uncertain about the whole thing. I mean, he used words, and I understand that he was trying to encode a message, and I, and 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 the decoding process was really, really complicated, and I, I just don't know if I can understand anything that he said at all. I mean, it, it's it's like you know, it's like. Exactly. No. McLaren and Bell and the Emergence, they sound exactly like the devil in the garden. Did God really say? Because their tactics are the same tactics. The end result is the same. Unbelief, unforgiveness, and basically a pernicious and nasty form of it at that that leaves you dead in your sins and liable to a just God. Incapable of believing the good news that's so clearly expressed in Scripture. That's why I played that sermon. Because it so beautifully, beautifully demonstrated that. All right. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to know. You can contact me by sending me a message in multiple ways. You can contact me on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. And you can know that with certainty. 